Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Notable. Hello, welcome Hello. to another notable podcast. Mm-hmm. Curious stories from the world of music, any kind of music. We love music, any kind of music, as the Plus OJs punk, once said. Punk, death punk. Soon, death punk. <laughs> and we are today in my flat, Elizabeth's welcome. flat. Yeah, Elizabeth's flat in I the got Northern some Quarter. Biscuits, especially the ultra-fashionable Northern Quarter of Manchester. Mm. And you may hear Terry the Terrier. Yeah, very Where unfashionable Yorkshire Terrier. Where is he? Oh, he's he should be a, a French bulldog or a dashend. Yeah. He's chewing the producer's shoes. Is he? Oh, he's he uh, he's, he's chewing, he's chewing, chewing, he's chewing Jeff producer's shoes. shoes. So, well, let's hope. <laughs> he's very naughty, by yeah. the way, so he probably will make himself heard at some point. The Terrier, not the producer. No. Yeah. But Jeff's very naughty as well. Um, we've got two subjects today that we're going to share with you. I'm going to start by talking a bit about the very brief and only stay Elvis Presley made in the United Kingdom. Yep. And in contrast, I'm going to talk about the influence of Freud on music. Wow. The whole of music. So we on this programme, we don't like to follow like the received wisdom that everyone always says that rock critics or whatever always says about music, you know. But one of those things that people always say is Elvis was better before he went in the army. Like when he was rough and edgy and cool. And he was great. Obviously, he was cool. But this idea that afterwards he became like a bloated Vegas guy and a sort of cheesy family entertainer, I don't kind of go along with that. I think some great Elvis after he comes out of the army. But there's no doubt that he was in the army. He was. Give us a room with the view of the beautiful Rhine. He was in the army for two years from 1958 to 1960, as all young American men of his vintage would have been, National Service on a US Air Force base in Germany. He knew it was coming, the draft, all young men of his age would be drafted. Colonel Tom Parker let Elvis think that, oh, you're going to get out of this. You know, you're Elvis Presley, I'll fix it, don't worry. But really, Parker not only knew he wouldn't get out of it, but was really happy for him to go because it gave Parker a chance to kind of regroup a bit because it had been a crazy few years. And also, Parker thought that it'd be good for Elvis's image. Yeah, I was going to say, That he's a wholesome boy, just like you, you know, he's going to go in the army. And, the, and in fact, Parker was kind of more keen on it happening than often the army were. Apparently, the, the Navy offered to create a special Elvis Presley company made up of his men. Like a, if he were going the Navy, a, a battalion of his own... Oh, wow. Battalion, what, a people of his, of his choosing? Or? His mates. Oh, right, OK. Offered him the chance wow. to perform in Vegas while he was in the Navy. I don't think he actually released any records. He just finishes King Creole before he goes in the army. I don't think he released any records while he was in the army. But I think they drip-fed, oh, Elvis is, you know, in Germany and he's doing this. And I think yeah. they drip-fed the odd picture of him doing something heroic and manly with a gun, you know. No one came along in the meantime, Just Googling those pictures. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what well, a sad thing that did happen while he was there was he got, I mean, because he spent time in German nightclubs and, and he developed, like a lot of soldiers had, a barbiturate problem. Because, you know, soldiers, because of the weird shifts they had to do and the routines and the night stuff, 
gone into popping pills to stay awake. Because right. speed and barbiturates have often been used by, by the military, you know what I mean, since Hitler's day and beyond probably. But um, yes, yeah, so he, he acquired a pill habit that he had for the rest of his life, apparently. But yeah, it was a strange two-year period, that period. And of course, one of the first records he makes on returning from the army is Wooden Heart, which now, compared to his early rock and stuff, does sound a bit cheesy, you know, he sings in Germany a bit. And it's an old German, like, folk tune nursery rhyme that he uh, that he says he picked up in Germany. I don't know if that's true, it was just a bit of PR, but yeah. But that's the kind of song that Elvis experts will point to saying, see, this is when he's gone off the bottom and started making this sort of stuff. If you want to know about those two years in Germany, Peter Gralnick's brilliant biography of Elvis says that, do you know what? It wasn't really like the toughest of national services. He was ve- he'd got special treatment. Okay. He lived in a house outside of the barracks, outside of the camp, with all his mates. Oh. Priscilla used to come around and visit because Priscilla was the daughter. Surely that's not allowed. Well, you wouldn't think so, would no. you? But Priscilla, he, that's how he met Priscilla because Priscilla's dad was at the camp. So, but that, anyway, that's what I'm saying. He did his stint. He did it. Mm. And then on the way back, on March 1960, the plane he's coming back from Germany to America stops and refuels at Glasgow's Presswick Airport in Ayrshire. And that is, we think, more about that in a moment, the only time Elvis Presley ever set foot on British soil. Which is incredible to think, isn't it, considering how popular he is here. Well, let's talk about why that might be briefly before we talk about the very brief stay. It's reckoned now that one of the reasons why Elvis was discouraged from touring anyway, he never came to Europe at all. The only times he went outside of America, I think, was that he went to Hawaii and things like that. Yeah. Is because his Colonel Tom Parker, his manager, was an illegal Dutch immigrant to the United States. And Parker was worried that when they were come back to immigration, the whole thing would be unraveled and he'd never get back in the US again. So that seems a pretty plausible reason why. But anyway, this plane stops and refuels and he spends we think well, how long did you think is it two hours but something like that I've it's only a couple of hours minutes, isn't it? i've seen two hours okay mentioned and basically there are people there because but about a couple of hundred people got wind of this yeah i was going to say it was quite a kind of muted um event really well, wasn't it, was. it in that you'd imagine like hundreds and hundreds of screaming fans yeah you, you know similar kind of Beatlemania type thing but like you say it was only a couple of hundred people who got wind of it a couple of hundred people one of them he is, was allowed out to meet them, wasn't he? Yeah, I think Leslie Roberts is one of the girls who was there. And okay. she says, I used to babysit a Sergeant Phelps who worked at the US Air Base. And he turned up at my house one day and said, told my mum, he said, Elvis Presley's going to be at the airfield that night, that night if you want to come. Now, I don't know, I wonder now whether, do you think they let it slip a bit because they wanted a bit of a fuss? Probably. Or was it just that people can't keep a secret? It sounds like a, con- a controlled fuss, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Just something that they can keep a handle on, but there's yes. still something to write about. Leslie Roberts' And it would be story, quite embarrassing if there was if literally he, no nothing. one turned up. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Her story, Leslie Roberts' story, is really sweet. She says, my mum ran to a phone, phone box and called me because she was at work. I couldn't believe it. I loved Elvis. I had all these records. On the bus home, I told everybody, I'm going to see Elvis that night. Everyone said it's just a rumour. She gets changed into her special Aww. clothes, her American jeans, lumberjack shirt, bobby socks, blue suede shoes, Aww. and then cycles three miles to the airport. But she drops in on her mate, Muriel, <laughs> who said she'd come too. Muriel, Elvis is Elvis is here. Down the road. But I couldn't manage to give her a backy which as you'll know, sit yeah, on the back yeah, of your yeah. bike. Why not? 
This, 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 here, is, the, this is obviously the crux of this story. Here, details are scant, Elizabeth, but she couldn't manage to give her a backy, so we skipped and ran all the way to the airbase, the remaining few miles to the airbase. Right. And they get there, and there's a small group of people and two huge Cadillacs. So clearly they're making a bit of a fuss. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, yeah, they... They could have kept it a lot quieter, couldn't they? They could have hidden the Cadillacs. I guess they could. I guess they could. Um, We were so excited, and suddenly the plane was in front of us. The door opened, and there was Elvis, so handsome in his uniform. And apparently, he waved. Apparently, he said, where am I? (laughs) Uh, Literally, he got off his plane and said, where am I? And everyone shouted back, Presswick, which would have meant like, nothing to him. <laughs> so, because, but then this is an interesting thing. He's supposed to have distant Scottish ancestry, Elvis. Okay. Because if you Google for Elvis Scotland, as I did quite a lot looking for this, as well as his two hours in Presswick, there's loads of stuff about his distant Scottish relatives. But anyway, huge group of military policemen, Muriel, perhaps angry at not getting a backy, jumps over the barrier and goes for Elvis. I don't mean go for him. That, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they pull her off him and it's all, all right. So she is quite athletic, Muriel, then, because I was wondering if she wasn't, which is why she, they couldn't make this backy happen. But actually, I don't know. So this rumour had gone around that he's going to stop off. This was the evening of March the 2nd, 1960. And it's, uh, yeah, it was supposed to be a secret, but one Scottish newspaper said it was a story too good not to be shared, which suggests that Elvis's PR people sort of let it slip. So he meets fans on the runway... Elvis comes off the plane in his uniform on the runway and, you know, he meets fans. And then uh, he goes off to the officer's mess, which now is the Adamton Country House Hotel, oh. where he rings Priscilla. Okay. Because the government, we think nowadays, particularly Elvis, you just ring him, anybody can ring anybody anytime, but even Elvis yeah, yeah. would have to have gone to the phone. To a phone box. To a yeah. phone box at the officer's mess <laughs> and rung her. But there's, you know, the, the details are pretty scanned about what he did but he hung out and he hung out people and apparently one of the photographers who was there says that he was you know well Elvis is legendary for his kind of good southern manners isn't he he's supposed to have been an incredibly well brought up boy and um, quite traditional in a lot of ways wasn't he there was a photographer though who said um, I used to know the airport staff so I'd get tipped off like if President Eisenhower or golfers like Jack Nicklaus and Gary Player were coming through on their way to to Troon Scottish golf courses and that night, he got this call saying, Elvis is going to be here. And he went, I found him to be really approachable and charming, like the kid next door, he said. Um, Elvis avoided questions about his teenage girlfriend, Priscilla. But then when asked if he was ever performing in Scotland, he said, I kind of like the... I'm not going to do that. That's like Cliff Richard, didn't it, more than Elvis? <laughs> I kind of like the idea of Scotland. I'm going to do a European tour, and it would be nice to come back here. But, of course, he, he, he never, never did. did. He never did, because yeah. we think... Because, because of, Colonel, because Tom of Colonel, Tom, Colonel Tom Parker. Very relaxed, by all accounts, yeah. as well, wasn't he? Like Colonel he Tom was wasn't there, you see. I mean, he was no. very controlling. Nowadays, yeah, we sort, of think, we sort of think of Colonel Tom as being a really pernicious influence on Elvis, don't we? I mean, bad career decisions. Like, I mean, it's widely regarded that the fact that Elvis spent so much of his, what would have been his artistic peak making those dreadful movies because yeah. Colonel Tom was particularly into rock and roll. Yeah. And so Elvis had to watch while the Beatles went massive and the Stones went massive and look at them and think, I can do that. And instead, I'm in this sort of stupid shirt singing Honolulu Baby and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's what Colonel Tom... Colonel Tom thought that's where the money is rather than any creative satisfaction. So I think he was a pretty bad influence on Elvis, all told. And when he wasn't with him, as he wasn't on this night, I think he probably had a much better time and was pretty relaxed and chatting. So also... A bit, a bit more himself, a bit more... not going to be relaxed Elvis. when you turn up at an airport? And the two, well, I suppose, I suppose that's a very facile thing I was going to say. I was going to say, 
And there's 200 there's girls two, there. 200 screaming girls there. <laughs> Muriel but jumping over Muriel, the fence. Exactly. Athletic Muriel. Athletic Muriel leaping off the back of the bike. <laughs> but it may be, but I suppose he was, but by then he would have been pretty used to it, I suppose. But anyway, but he, yeah, he was pretty relaxed. Absolutely, people said. And several people still have, if you look through the Scottish newspaper archive at the time, there's loads of good pictures he was very amenable I was going to say are there loads of good pictures because you do see the, the same ones which you do are tend to see obviously the, yes. by uh, Ian McGee isn't it that's right took that's them. right yeah I mean he does look handsome oh, well, as I always mean, he was, but he's all you know what? dressed you up in his pic- uniform isn't he if you see pictures of Elvis around this time and just before I don't think he looks just handsome he doesn't look quite real do you know what I mean yeah it's like he's too superhuman he's too superhumanly attractive yeah, yeah, he, he doesn't look like a real human being I know it's a really weird thing to say but he is you look at him and you think no one's that physically beautiful yeah, you know yeah but um, great her as well who's the most famous person you've seen at an, at an airport I was once at, at the height of Brosmania. Right, okay. I was once at Glasgow Airport, funnily no enough. No way! And Were they trying to recreate some kind of... Uh... Well, no, what happened was... I was <laughs> and you with... jumped off your bike, Stuart, over the I'd... barrier. <laughs> you, yeah. No, I, was, I wasn't... I was just milling around. I wasn't milling around. I was at Glasgow Airport for some reason. And I heard over the tannoy of the public address system... <laughs> Would passengers Matt and Luke Goss no. on British Airways Flight 4192 Los Angeles please make their way to the information point? No. And of course, immediately you looked around and looked, every girl, young girl in the bloody airport <laughs> went, what? And, and I thought, you haven't thought to give a false name. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. So either it was a stupid joke yeah. or Matt and Luke Goss. Or the PR people hadn't thought through. This is going to cause a massive fuss. Wow! And it did cause a massive fuss. Did it? Did, My did, favorite... did people rush towards the oh, gate? Yeah, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. My favourite airport departure pop star crossover story okay. is apparently when Herman's Hermits made their first tour of America, <laughs> first trip to America with their singer Peter Noon. Apparently, N O O N E, I should say the name Noon. That when he arrived, someone wanted to message him saying they got in touch, and the tannoy crackled into life with. Paging Mr. No One. Paging Mr. No One. I thought his name was No One, not Noon. Which is a great story. Um, but yes, Elvis went in, went to the officer's mess, had a cup of tea. Wow. I mean, that's privilege, isn't it, going to the officer's mess? I guess so, because he wasn't an officer. Yeah. So, so, but, but he was, but he was the king of rock and roll. Let's he, not forget well, that's that. that's true. Let's not forget that. Um, now, here's an interesting, I think, postscript. That is generally regarded, pub quiz type, type of act, did Elvis Presley ever come to the UK? And it's always, yeah, he, he made a, a flying visit, literally a flying visit in March 1960. But on the Ken Bruce show in 2008, Bill Kenwright, who is the president of Everton FC and used to be in Coronation Street and he's a big theatrical impresario, he said Elvis spent a day in London, being shown around London, incognito, in disguise, by Tommy Steele. No in way. the early 60s. Really? Okay. Yeah. And yeah, apparently this is absolutely true. Ken Wright said this. He said, Tommy Steele. It Steel. does seem unbelievable that he well, never does, came to it? London. I mean, it, I he beg, must have been here. So. 1958, I beg your pardon. 1958, so before he went in the army, okay. visited the Houses of Parliament and Buckingham Palace. He inadvertently, a bit like, do you remember when um, Matthew Paris inadvertently outed Peter Mandelson live yeah. on Newsnight? Well, he inadvertently let this slip. Just, in a, you know, he said, oh, well, when Elvis came and Tommy Steele took Elvis around London and Ken Bruce, news yeah, hound, obviously. said, what do you mean? Pop master. Pop master, yeah. And he inadvertently let this slip and Tommy Steele wasn't very happy. Uh, Tommy Steele said, what actually happened many years ago is something secret and memorable. It was an event shared by two young men showing the same love of music. I swore never to divulge publicly what took place. 
and I regret deeply that it has found some way of getting into the light. I only hope that he, Presley, mm. can forgive me. Mm. So it does sound like this, this really happened. Oh, wow. That he went in 58 round incognito. But the only yeah. documented case we have is these couple of hours on the evening of March the 2nd, 1960 at Presswick Airport. Pub quiz is being written, rewritten all over the place. Absolutely, yes. He so, met yeah. the Beatles once, didn't he? But they had to go to Graceland. They had one meeting. The Beatles went to see him in Graceland, yeah. And, um, played snooker, I think. Something like that. And it was all quite awkward by yeah. all accounts. Led Zeppelin went to meet him uh, at Graceland. Because I think Elvis was interested and a bit jealous of all these young men who were yeah. kind of like, I do It's like I, you say, they when, were, they were, I, it was at that point, wasn't yeah. it, when these bands were kind of taking over and stealing his crown, I suppose. And they'd all grown up listening to Elvis. They yeah. all thought he was the king. And I think they were going to his house, basically saying, Elvis, stop making these movies and make yeah, some records. Yeah, yeah. And apparently Elvis's dad, Vernon, was a very small man. And he was in Graceland. And if you know anything about Led Zeppelin, Peter Grant, their manager, a character, shall we say in inverted commas, which we know what that usually means. Uh, when people say large and life character, we know what that usually means. Um, and he was a great burr of a man. And he didn't look, he came into the room, plonked himself down and sat on Elvis's dad, Vernon, apparently. Really? Yeah. And so when they were leaving, Peter Grant apparently issued the immortal words, well, thanks, Elvis. Thanks for seeing my boys. And it was lovely. And I'm sorry about sitting on your dad. <laughs> were his parting words. <laughs> so there you go. Elvis came to Press Week and he might have gone round London with Tommy Steele as well in 1958. We shall mm. never know. So today's notable exception, this is a one-off, a one-off isn't it, of from the world kind, of music. Yeah. Uh, so amazingly, Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love only shared the stage in public on one occasion. Really? Uh, yeah, Cobain turned up at one of Love's acoustic sets. So it was a solo acoustic set. Oh, so it wasn't a whole No, gig. it was a, a Love acoustic set at Club Lingerie in Hollywood. Right. And did they and do they something stupid by Nancy and Frank Sinatra? <laughs> or Islands in the Stream by Dolly Parton and uh, Kenny Rogers? That would have been lovely. Uh, apparently it was for a charity. Okay. So um, she introduced him as my husband, Yoko. Wow. What a wag. <laughs> and they played uh, Penny Royalty, the Nirvana oh, yeah, song, yeah, Penny yeah. Royalty yeah, together. Yeah. And they closed the set um, with a performance of Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Which is also a Nirvana number, acoustic. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Unplugged. Yeah. Well, I'd like to tell you I was there and I can give you more information, but I wasn't. And neither was I. Shall I tell you when it was? No. <laughs> I'm going to anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry, <that> <laughs> It was uh, September the 8th, 1993. Excellent. At the height of their fame. And that's pretty much it. Not much other information about that, just that he turned up and they performed together. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Elizabeth, you're now going to tell me about Sigmund Freud. I'm all ears. I am. (laughs) Freud. Uh, I'm going to argue that he had an impact on kind of the whole of 20th century and beyond. Pop and classical music, Terry. Yeah, I know. Sorry. I know. It's madness, isn't it, Terry? Terry, you don't agree. Who clearly. else? Who else? Would Who Terry's more of a young man. He's in the young camp. Yeah. <laughs> right. You think so? <laughs> not just on classical music. He thinks that's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, you'll see. Okay. An interesting point to start on, though, is that Freud actually wasn't that interested in music. So he I was ambivalent. Yeah. yeah. Ambivalent, well, at, at the least ambivalent. He wasn't um, at the most, detested it. Yeah. As he said in his words, he was Gans a musicaliche. Okay. I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. Totally unmusical, okay. it means. He's known to have once said when discussing his enjoyment of the arts in general, we know that he was a big fan of sculpture in particular and poetry and literature. Um, But talking about music, he said, I'm almost incapable of obtaining any pleasure from it. Some rationalistic or perhaps analytic turn of mind rebels against being moved by it. Okay, he was um, honest about it, I suppose. He was, yeah. yeah. Um, it's believed, psychiatrists since have uh, discussed this, and it's believed that he might have even suffered from melophobia, which is a, fi- a fear of music. As Freud might say, uh, you know, an association with something traumatic in your past. Okay. That's, you know, so like a brass think? band went past when his yeah. mum crushed his favourite spinning top. Exactly That's Freud's that. usual explanation. Yeah. That and his fear of castration are Freud's usual explanations for everything, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Aside from that, of course, as we know, Freud is famous for theories about the subconscious, hysteria, uh, the meanings of our dreams, and the one thing that these days has kind of disqualified him from serious scientific circles, the fact that he believed literally everything came back to that one thing, yeah. sex. that's right. Another important part of this story is re- really is kind of Vienna at this time, the mm-hmm. turn of the 20th century. Uh, so in many ways, kind of symbolic of the old world in terms of arts and empire, nobility. But at this point in history, really in a kind of state of flux, having a bit of an identity crisis, right. you know, at this point of confluence in Europe, a trade centre. but Austro-Hungarian um, Empire, absolutely. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 In its final... Phase, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rising unemployment, economic crisis, mm-hmm. international tensions as well, which was impacting the kind of the socio-political climate. Also a growing influential Jewish community, which also experienced a lot of anti-Semitism at this time as well, sadly, but which also, interestingly, was part of a growing subculture as well. So mm. this wasn't just kind of art and um, ideas that were coming out of the, school, the universities and um, conservatoires and that sort of thing. This was out there in the cabaret clubs and backstreet bars. Yeah. So, so yeah. So an interesting mix of intellectualism and subversive ideas, and people were questioning the own uh, the old world. So I guess kind of questioning preconceived ideas about humanity and the way we feel and think and our subconscious and the focus is very much becoming in on, you know on the interior so on our internal oh, world. Are we talking the early 20th century? Yeah, turn of the century. Turn of the century. And yeah. Freud was the only person really or the first significant character really kind of trying to scientifically unbutton that so yeah. making us look um, internally and exploring the subconscious. 
So when do we see the first manifestations of like Freudianism and Freud's thinking in, in music? Well, Strauss's opera Electra is kind of considered uh, the first Freudian opera just for its themes of, you know, well, sexual aberration. Well, it's, it's one of Freud's concepts, the Electra complex, Absolutely. isn't it? It's one of yeah, like, yeah. Oedipus complex. It's one of his complexes, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. one critic said, uh, the blood mania appears as a terrible defamation of sexual perversity. Wow. So it had them reeling at the time. But the first kind of really concrete and significant impacts, you know, where we can say he met this musician and it had this yeah. effect, uh, was a meeting that he had with Mahler, Gustav Mahler. Okay. Uh, Austrian, well, Bohemian Austrian yeah. composer, actually. And also, you know, just a really interesting character, also had a preoccupation with death and relationships. It's mm-hmm. all over his music mm-hmm. and such a tortured past as well. I mean, his, his father famously abused his mother and there were uh, sibling deaths when he was a child. And we see throughout his whole life, really, him trying to kind of unpick this through his art and his music. But if we go to the... The Marla Foundation actually claims that the reason he went to see Freud was because he was worried his wife at the time was rebelling against the reducing of his libido. So, right. on, yeah. Rebelling so, against it? She was. Okay. Rebe- well, unfaithful. I get you. Alma. Yes. Alma Marla. A fa- Alma Marla. Alma Marla's Much a famous, yeah. famous woman, yeah. And she was a real source of kind of trouble in his life, wasn't she? Yes, Terry. She was. She was famously... She was like great beauty, socialite, yeah. well-known around the artistic circles, wasn't she, Alma Marley? And yeah. he was deeply in love with her. And um, so, uh, on the 26th of August, 1910, Marla travelled to Holland to spend four hours with Freud. Um, and uh, the Marla Foundation also said, if Marla wrote the soundtrack for The Age of Anxiety, then it was Freud who provided the script. So we know that they spent four hours together. Apparently, he was in some way cured. Really? Of... Um, of his fears of that his, his wife uh, was rebelling? Yeah. <laughs> against yeah. his dwindling libido? <laughs> yeah. So what's interesting in kind of following this is that we know someone who Marla had a huge influence on, both in terms of ideas and inspiration, musically and thematically, Arnold Schoenberg. Schoenberg. Sh- Arnold Schoenberg, who we should figure. say, massively influential figure, for better yeah. or worse, because just, you know, you can't do Schoenberg justice in a sentence, but to say he's... His new theories of new tonality yep. and harmonies and um, oh, yeah. serialism and all those things, yep. for better or worse, became enormously Changed influential. Changed music forever. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And has really divided musicians right across the board yeah. ever since. Yeah. So Arnold Schoenberg, just this huge character, and he kind of extended, I suppose, ideas of chromaticism that were already appearing in music by Mahler and before that Wagner but well documented that he was also concerned with this kind of interior world Mm. and hugely impacted by Freud right so there was one event in particular that kind of set Arnold Schoenberg off on this course in the summer of 1908 Schoenberg's wife had an affair with their neighbor the artist Richard Gerstle who subsequently, when Schoenberg persuaded his wife, she was called Matilda, to come back to him, committed suicide. So, awkward to say the least. Yeah. He uh, sought psychoanalysis. Schoenberg did. Yeah. So Schoenberg did, stricken with Gr- guilt? Tra- tra- yeah. um, Traumatised by the whole thing, I suppose. Well, it would be traumatic. Yeah, I mean, abandoned, and then there's this, like, you know, there's this violent death, and no it's all very... No one to put your out when you're not there anymore. Exactly. <laughs> no one to feed the cat anymore sorry so, to make light of his human tragedy but yes true. He, he, he does a yeah. traumatic effect on Arnie Schoenberg it does it does and um he sought psychoanalysis after that event right. 
and just turned again his focus onto the kind of interior. And this is where he is just after this moment that Schoenberg starts writing atonal music. Right. So this, this is music without any reference to any key. So I guess he suddenly felt like instead of, I suppose, music up until this point, um, it had expressed these emotions. Mm-hmm. Um perhaps sugarcoated them or tried to make what was painful beautiful at the same time, romanticised trauma and pain and anguish. And at this point, music starts to just aesthetically kind of reflect those painful feelings. Mm -hmm. And it sounds painful. Yes. So atonal music is dissonant, isn't it? It's kind of grating. Yeah, traditional harmony, I guess he felt, just could not express these feelings anymore. Yeah. So he kind of creates this new musical language. It just goes off script, doesn't it? And we also get this new style of kind of singing, Sprechgesang. Sprechgesang, yeah. Or Sprechgesang. Which is kind of somewhere between speaking and singing, yeah. Yeah, it basically means spoken singing. Right. I like it. It's really kind of manic, quite intense. Yeah. I guess the notes are bent all over the place, aren't they? It's almost like a wailing... Is it Piero Lunaire? Piero Lunaire, absolutely. The major work in this field, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, And we get these harmonies that are just ear grating, Mm -hmm. very effective. Um, We start to see these, like, I suppose the murky depths of Of the subconscious subconscious coming coming out in sound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you think, by the way, I've never heard this kind of music, you have. Because if you've watched anything like The Twilight Zone... I also often think this, that the music they use as the incidental music for things like this is really very influenced by people like Schoenberg. That sort of... Yeah. And it was yeah. also... Well, Cabaret had a big influence on it. So yeah. this is what I was saying before. And there's a slightly grotesque quality Absolutely. To it, yeah. it was coming out of the Cabaret clubs. It was coming out of the kind of seedy underbelly of Viennese yeah. life. This wasn't coming out of the conservatoires. It but wasn't... what you're saying is a really good point. Previously, people had said, we're going to express heartbreak yeah. or angst but in these very melodic flowing lines mm-hmm. of, you know, this is the first time when Schoenberg saying, I want yep. the music to, actually, make you feel the same. to actually sound like what's going on inside. And that's Freud. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Without a doubt, the influence of Freud and just this kind of idea that there is this subconscious, that these aren't just surface feelings, like there's this interior world that yeah. we need to unleash. Yeah. Yeah. And that can be done through sound. Piero Lunaire, as you mentioned, a landmark work. Again, this kind of mix of subversive content, this preoccupation with the subconscious. It's concerned with dreams, so the whole thing happens in one night, um, and it's somewhere between kind of consciousness and also a nightmare unfolding, I suppose. And Piero Lunaire, well, Piero is a a stock comedia dell'arte character, um, but in at this time in particular, Piero had become kind of imbued with androgyny and fluctuating gender and subversive okay. ideas. Okay. Also, uh, Schoenberg's opera Erwartung, considered a psychoanalytic work, set to a libretto by Mary Pappenheim, who was a cousin of Freud's hysterical patient, um, as she was well known, Anna O. Oh, yes, yes. She, um, yeah. The first patient to undergo his talking cure. So we have dissonance, atonality, as we're saying, a real kind of reflection of the subconscious, revolutionary in music. I mean, dissonance even today is... It's a little controversial, isn't it? It is, if yeah. You, like, but we use feedback to evoke those feelings still, yeah, don't we? Yeah. And, and it still sets people's teeth on the wrong way. I mean, like you you know, you work, you work for Radio 3. I do some things for them and... Some people will will still say if you play a bit of Schoenberg, you know, yep. no, take that off. It's not music. You it's know. really hard. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Schoenberg, the second Viennese school, is what he and his pupils Alban Berg and Anton Webern became mm-hmm. known. But this is where I'm going to argue that they were, you know, have influenced all music ever since. Right. 
just as a starting point, a massive influence on Boulez yeah. and the music concrete musicians yeah. working in Paris, Pierre Henry and Pierre Schaffer, without whom is it possible to imagine Western pop? Electronic music. Well, yeah. Possibly yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also a huge influence on Stockhausen. Mm-hmm. Alban Berg in particular was a huge influence on Stockhausen. I mean, he's another person who suffered a lot of trauma as a child. His mother was sent to a Nazi asylum. And one of Berg's violin concertos, the, the, I think the, the Berg violin concerto, he only wrote one, it's justly famous. A lot of people think it's the most accessible work to come out of that school, the second Viennese school, is in memoriam Alma Mahler. It is, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. And what about Ed Sheeran? What well, about Jedward? He, they had a big influence on the Beatles, didn't they? The, I guess Sampling. Right, the, but the Beatles, you're um, right, but the Beatles' wilder moments that... Yeah, but yeah, yeah. No, you no. These things. I certainly would agree with you that serialism, the twelve tone school, whatever you want to call it, absolutely influenced all classical music that came after. Because everybody, even if they reject it, you'll find that most composers after them had a bit of a dabble, didn't they? Yeah, and they introduced oh, some of the techniques into their music to free them up a bit. You yeah, know? and yeah. I think most people who study music now in conservatoires and universities at some point have to decide are they going to be are they going to do it or not? Um, into serialism or are they and are they, if they're good in composition are they going to write in that way or not but and, and it divides everybody but it's it? very rare now isn't it to find a dyed in the wall hardcore serialist who writes nothing else you know what yeah. you will find is people tend to pick and mix from different styles now and you're the minimalists saying, also massively yeah, influenced yeah, by um, yeah. even though it was Berio wasn't it who told Steve Reich that he could go off and write tonal music he started out writing atonal music. And, and Berio is a serial, is a serialist as well. And you're saying that all this serial well minimalism comes from, comes from Freud. <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm serious. And you're saying that Freud's the the germ of all this is because Freud influences Schoenberg and Schoenberg yeah, influences this, everybody else. Yeah, 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 I suppose creates this new language that we haven't had up until this point. Yeah, I'm saying he's he's part of the story. I, I think you're that's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. I met Stockhausen once. Did you? Mm. Oh my gosh, really? I met him in a park in Birmingham. Oh my goodness. I'll briefly digress. There's one of these very large scale pieces is where you put, it's in a site, it's not site specific, sorry, but it's intended to be, you put bunches of musicians and speakers in trees and, so the idea yeah. is you walk around a big public park. It's been performed once in Iran somewhere. And the idea is you walk around and get this. It's an epic bit of music that occupies a whole site. And they did it in Cannon Hill Park in Birmingham. And Stockhausen was oh there oh wandering around in a white suit looking very serene. I'd be there with Muriel on the back. I, I saw... Stockholm, pedaling yeah. down. We took a flask of gin and tonic and we had a few. And I said, like, give him the thumbs up. All right, Carl. <laughs> Carl Hines. And my mate Colin tried to get me to go over to him and go... Want to get some tunes, mate? This isn't going to get in the charts. This is, this is terrible. You want to listen to some modern pop, mate? But I didn't. But I sort of went thumbs up and sort of and he sort of nodded at me. Anyway, there's my Stockhausen That's story. That's amazing. Yeah. Also, Stockhausen, perhaps kind of drawn to this type of music because he he too had a really traumatic background. His father became a Nazi. His mother was killed by the Nazis, and just really kind of embarrassed about German history at this point, as yeah. understandably, I guess, at that time. Yeah. Um, and created this kind of fantasy world, didn't he? He he told people he was from a different planet and that he was the son of a yeah, some kind of sun true. god. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know, they're all people who believe that were really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I never was. I was never taken by that. When I met we him really in that, do... when I met <laughs> him in that park in Birmingham, I, there was no way I was buying that. Born, I said to him that. I said, "You're born on another planet there," and I sort of punched him on the shoulder affectionately. <laughs> we really do rely on like. I don't know, some big drama queens in history, don't we, to move pop forwards. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, I'm not saying he's... A, I'm actually you are, maybe that's, say he's maybe a drama that's trivialising, queen. <laughs> trivialising. I'm not trivialising it. Just one little little fact to okay. leave you with. 
So uh, Rachmaninoff famously uh, suffered really badly with depression okay. throughout his whole life. A catalyst for a particular kind of uh, dark phase was the premiere of his first symphony. Glazunov conducted it and mm-hmm. was... Well, he'd been to the pub at lunch, let's say. Well, he was one of the many Russian he alcoholic was, yep. composers. Glazunov, Mussorgsky, drank Absolutely. himself to death. Yeah. yeah. So the whole thing was a disaster. The critics panned it and he got really terrible writer's block afterwards. Right. Okay. And so somebody recommended, you know, this new treatment mm-hmm. that was coming out of uh, Freud's writings and was spreading across so this Europe. So psychoanalysis, yeah. It was hypnotherapy. Oh, hypnotherapy. Hypnotherapy. And he had it and... Completely cured. Yeah, shifted the writer's block. See, I don't like. So there you go. I don't like Rachmaninoff's music at what? all. I really? find it too chocolate boxy and flowery. Okay. So I would rather he'd stay blocked. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Freud, one point where so bad influence Freud. Freud. Yeah, Freud slipped up there. Freud slipped okay. up there. Yeah, yeah. The thing is that again, it's for better or worse. Freud is one of those individuals who has had a massive shaping effect on. Society and culture, for a while anyway, his ideas became so ultra fashionable, and so and they did really influence. Um, I don't know public policy, but they certainly influenced the culture of intellectual ideas, the intellectual climate at the time post Freud. I think now it's swung back a little the other way, hasn't it? People are starting to think that yeah. the obsession with sex, sex yeah. the meaning of dreams, and all that. People are saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" But certainly, without Freud, there's no modern counselling there's no psychotherapy there's no talking cures and stuff like that yeah absolutely and i mean well everyone always says well as freud would have what would freud well, have said freud yeah. and so no talking cures no modern psychotherapy and according to you no jedward no jedward uh, yeah <laughs> or, or ed sheeran so there you go freud's influenced all pop music up to and including jedward and ed sheeran and elvis presley may have been to britain twice and was probably also influenced by freud Definitely. <laughs> we will be back with another notable podcast very soon. Next week. Yeah, but from us, me. And me. Producer Jeff, Terry, Terry. the Terrier. See you soon. <laughs> oh, Terry, he's weeding my hallway and passed out. Notable, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>